Greetings and welcome to the Boxing Esquire Podcast. Welcome to another edition of the Boxing Esquire Podcast. My guest on this episode is uh, one of the foremost attorneys in the area of anti-doping, Mr. Rick Collins. Had the pleasure of working with Rick on an anti-doping matter a few years ago, and he's without question one of the most knowledgeable people on the subject of doping in sports. I had a chance to discuss uh, the Canelo case as well as the Wilder-Povetkin case. Uh, we also got into what an ideal anti-doping program for boxing would look like, and I uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Hope you do as well. So it is my great pleasure to welcome to the Boxing Esquire podcast my good friend and, uh, and amazing attorney, uh, Rick Collins. How are you doing today, Rick? I'm doing great, Kurt. How are you? Thank you for uh, for having me on your show. Yes, yeah, absolute pleasure. Um yeah, I just wanted to talk about uh, your background a little bit and, and what's been going on in, in, in boxing uh, most recently in your in your area of expertise. Um, you're Absolutely. A par- awesome. You're a partner at Collins, Gann, McCloskey, and Barry? That's the name of the firm. Yes, sir. <laughs> and what, what, tell the people your specialty. So uh, we have a firm here in, uh, in Long Island, New York. Uh, the firm does a number of different things. Um, from criminal defense to personal injury. My own practice is somewhat specific. I like to say it's basically where health and fitness and sports intersect with the law, typically criminal law or regulatory law or uh, anti-doping-related cases. So I get involved in cases where people either test positive for performance-enhancing drugs. Uh, I handle a lot of criminal matters where people are accused of distributing or importing, manufacturing or possessing anabolic steroids or other types of performance-enhancing drugs. And I also do a lot of work in the dietary supplement industry, particularly in the sports nutrition sector, dealing with um, different types of substances and supplements that uh, either improve uh, strength or health. So my uh, my personal background is I was a competitive bodybuilder, so I come from a background in health and fitness. Uh, I was a personal trainer. So I've been able to meld my vocation and avocation to really take what I'm passionate about in life and to do it as a career. I'm, I'm very, very blessed in uh, in the career that, that I have. And I have a nationwide practice. I handle these types of matters throughout uh, America. Uh, and I've, I've actually gotten to be involved in even some cases that are outside the U.S., whether uh, it's Canada um, or you and I actually worked on a matter that was uh, venued out in, in Germany at one time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Um, definitely wanted to talk to you. I mean, I mean, you know, you're a very busy man. I, I wanted to get you a, a couple weeks before because uh, uh, all of, you know, the sport of boxing has, has kind of been inundated uh, in, in recent months with uh, a couple of, uh, Huge uh, doping cases. Um, obviously, right. the biggest one was involving uh, Canelo Alvarez and uh, right. and his uh, rematch with uh, Gennady Golovkin. Um, what's what's your initial I- impressions of the case as you've uh, taken a look at it? So it was a positive for a substance called clenbuterol, 
which, uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, is uh, is not an anabolic steroid, but it's a drug that's uh, approved in some countries uh, as a bronchodilator. Um, in this country, we actually have something called albuterol, and that's what's the approved drug. So clenbuterol is not approved in the U.S. as a FDA-approved medication. But it's a beta-2 agonist, and um, some people use it for cutting, for uh, increasing the metabolism and burning some fat or losing weight. It's used by some bodybuilders uh, to to bring themselves into competition, contest shape. Uh, it's also used to to cut weight. Um, so clenbuterol is a it's a in that sense it's a performance enhancing drug in some sports, and it's um, it's banned in many, many, many sports, and uh, we see athletes test positive for it. Uh, we see others test positive for it. I had a case not too long ago in the New York City Police Department trial room where a New York City police officer tested positive under the steroid and growth hormone uh, testing provisions of the New York City Police Department's rules. He tested positive for clenbuterol, and he actually was forced to undergo a full week-long trial in the trial room before I was able to ultimately get him exonerated um, and uh, and beat the case in that clenbuterol case. So clenbuterol is something that, that you see often. Other fighters have tested positive for it. We've also seen it in other sports as well. Um, and we have seen clenbuterol uh, positives where it appears that the person did not intentionally take clenbuterol. And so there are some ways that people can actually test positive for that substance, even when they didn't knowingly intentionally take a pill that contained clenbuterol. Right, right, right. In, in this case, obviously, Canelo, um, you know, is from Mexico, was in Mexico at the time that he was tested and um, you know, WADA has 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 put out some directives about um, both Mexico and China, where you know I, I guess they've had many incidences of uh, athletes testing positive for trace amounts of clenbuterol. So um, it appears that you know e even on the initial uh, medical report, they said that it was consistent with. Um, you know, uh, the, the trace amount was consistent with what would be normally like just meat contamination and not and not uh, cycling. Uh, what was your impression of uh, of that? Yeah, I mean that's that's exactly correct. And in this country, you won't have clenbuterol being uh, administered to cattle, but in other countries, that's what happens, and it's a way of obviously bringing uh, the cattle to slaughter more quickly, you know, gaining them, you know, getting them more weight on them and, and uh, more meat on the cattle in a quicker way. So Mexico and China are both places where you'll see clenbuterol in meat. And if you take the meat, you ingest the meat, you eat the meat, then you've got the potential to test positive, depending on the timing of, of when you ate it, etc. But you can inadvertently test positive. And we've seen that in other sports. Uh, the famous uh, Contador case uh, involved tainted meat um, as well. 
Um, so meat contamination is one way that folks can test positive for clenbuterol, even though they didn't knowingly or intentionally take it. I've also seen cases where people test positive for clenbuterol out of dietary supplements. So in other words, the supplement, while it doesn't have clenbuterol on the label, it may be cross-contaminated somehow with clenbuterol. And we've seen that happen. You know, every athlete uh, who dopes, or many of them, will protest, hey, I didn't do it. I got it out of, <laughs> I, I must have taken a supplement. Uh, I tested positive because I, I, I must have taken a supplement. I didn't intentionally take anything. But, you know, and, and maybe that's a, the dog ate my homework excuse for some people, but it actually is true in some cases. If you remember, there was the case of Jessica Hardy, the Olympic swimmer. So she was a, uh, a rep for a particular dietary supplement company, and the supplement company's whole shtick was, hey, you know, you can take our products and you don't have to worry about testing positive. Well, she took their products and she tested positive <laughs> for the products that wow. she was pitching. Uh-huh. And she, uh, you know, talk about damaging um, the rules, and we can talk about sort of what strict liability means, but ultimately she had to withdraw from the Olympics. I mean, she mm-hmm. lost her shot at the 2008 Olympics because of the uh, unintentional ingestion of clenbuterol. Mm. Well, that, you know, that, that's a really interesting point because I think, with, especially with clenbuterol, there's like a timeline, right? I mean, you have Jessica's case, which is 2008, and you also have, you know, the IOC's rules, which is the WADA code, which is very, you know, it's geared to, for, for the Olympics, in, in essence, and right. it has very right. severe penalties, right. and it has strict liability. You right. know, then you have the Contador case, which comes a couple of years later, mm-hmm. where it seems like they... Uh, they they apply the code, um, and you know his his you know his his own. I believe it was the, the the national federation let him off. They because it was kind of trace amounts and and uh, you know they, they kind of bought his story about about the meat. But then it went to the uh, the CAS, you know the the athletic court, and right. they basically required him. To, to trace it back to the farm, in essence, <laughs> you know, the, the right, meat, right. you know, the, the, right. they wanted to see that, you know, that there was a likelihood that he got tainted meat. I mean, they, they were requiring a really strict standard of proof, but I, it, it right. seems like, I don't know if it was 2011, like maybe a year or so later when FIFA was in Mexico and like all of those soccer players um, right. Tested the whole positive. team. Yeah, yeah. 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 They, they all they all <laughs> right. tested positive for like the the trace amounts of clenbuterol, and at that point in time, Wada was just you know kind of like whoa, whoa, okay, okay, maybe there is a problem with meat contamination. Maybe right. maybe we're being too strict. And uh, it seems like you know the 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 meat contain you know Wada I guess put out a directive. I, I I'm not sure of the year, but they did put out a directive where they said it is very very difficult in places like Mexico and China. To determine whether someone's been, you know, dosing or or they just ate contaminated meat, especially when you have those those trace positives, right? And and that's that's a great point because in in you know some would advocate that there be some sort of a threshold so that there's a a cutoff that it's not deemed a positive. So if you have a low level of clenbuterol 
in your system that that is deemed not to be a violation of the anti-doping rules, you know, having some sort of basic threshold, you know, which, which they have. So, for example, nandrolone, which is an anabolic steroid, um, you can have a threshold for that uh, below which uh, it's not deemed a positive. You know, the argument, I guess, against that is that how do you really determine whether the low level is due simply to the ingestion of very small amounts out of meat or out of, let's say, a dietary supplement product, or is it simply that you are in the process of ridding a higher level of clenbuterol out of your system? So it's essentially on the downslide in terms of the concentration in your urine, and the t- you've just timed your use of clenbuterol so that by the time you actually take the test on, let's say, the, the day of the fight or something, you know, the, the day of a competition, that at that point, it appears to be a trace level, but it wasn't a trace level days or or weeks earlier, and you've gotten the full performance benefit, the advantage of the banned substance. So the argument against thresholds is essentially, how do you determine which of those two is the truth? Right, right. The medical science hasn't hasn't quite uh, gotten to that point yet, right? We don't, we, they, they can't, determine whether it was meat contamination or, or uh, you know, supplement contamination or someone just straight dosing. Um, right, right. You see that, that same you know, sometimes happens with, uh, with drunk driving cases where a, a person may uh, have a particular blood alcohol content at the side of the road and the government or the police will sometimes argue, well, it, it was probably higher when he was driving, um, you know, than when we finally got him back to the station house. And so if we sort of extrapolate back, he, he had a high enough blood alcohol content to make him, uh, to provide probable cause for him to be charged with drunk driving, even though at the time he took the test, it was a little bit lower. So how do you know that it's actually on the downslide or whether it was actually, if he drank just before he got in the car, maybe it was actually rising. And at the time he was driving, it was still below the threshold for drunk driving. Right, right. Yeah, I guess with with Canelo's case too. I mean, there have been a few cases in boxing. Uh, you know, Canelo's case was in Nevada. Um, there was one in New York, um, which which was completely just a, a crazy case because the commission didn't even find out till the week of the fight that the fighter had tested positive, like you know, a month or two ago, and it tested positive again, and then you know, basically had finally tested clean. And but again, it was trace levels. But the, right. a case in California was, was more interesting, Francisco Vargas, where he had, the initial test was in the States, so, and it was clean, and then he went back to Mexico and got tested, and then he tested positive for the trace uh, clinical right. right. So that was right. an easier right. case to make, but with Canelo, unfortunately, it was the very first test they took in Mexico, and, and it had the trace levels. So. Right, well, and he also took two tests. Canelo, right? Right. So it was, right. there were two separate positive tests. But then he did a hair analysis and that came up negative. Right. So you've got essentially, you know, contradictory 
uh, test results where you've got two positive urine tests a few days apart, and then you've got a hair analysis that comes up negative. And the question is, is the hair analysis sufficiently reliable to really rebut the uh, accuracy of the urine tests? And you know, even if you do have a, a subsequent hair analysis that's negative, you, you still have you have a urine positive. You know, right. and in in the the world of strict liability, and you know, we've got a, a, a you know a positive that was in his urine at that time, um, and it was you know two separate tests show it. So is is the hair analysis uh, sufficient to rebut? Becomes the question. Right, right. Now, the strict liability standard, I mean, when, when WADA was enacted, I guess, in the late 90s, right, WADA um, decided to adopt that strict liability standard just, just be, I guess, because there's just such a difficulty with a, a, a standard of, you know, proof otherwise, you know. You, you... Yeah, I think the whole idea of introducing strict liability is that it would economically bankrupt the anti-doping authorities if they had to prove that every positive test was the result of intent. That right. they had to prove intent or knowledge in every single case, it would be cost ineffective for them to continue. And so the the strict liability essentially removes that aspect. There doesn't need to be intent. There doesn't need to be knowledge. Uh, even in the um, uh, in athletics in college, uh, collegiate athletics, NCAA, um, all of the student athletes are told early on in an educational presentation when they get to the campus that if it's in your body, you're you're held accountable for it. Whatever it is that's in your urine, and it doesn't matter how it got there, unless obviously if you can prove that you were sleeping and you've got videotape of somebody, you know, injecting you while you're asleep, right. then yeah. But but shy of that, um, even in uh, collegiate uh, cases, you've seen student athletes held accountable. Uh, in situations where there was some level of due diligence, but just not enough. So uh, this strict liability standard makes it easier for the anti-doping sleuths to held athletes accountable. You know, on the other hand, you know, we're, I do a lot of criminal cases, too. And most people are more familiar with the criminal justice system than they are with the anti-doping system. And I think the average person just is queasy over the idea of strict liability. It really is contrary to our most fundamental principles of justice, where somebody's not held, you can't find somebody guilty if he didn't uh, intend to commit the crime. Um, we have obviously a, a rule that ignorance of the law, you know, is not a defense. You don't need to know the law, but you do need to know the facts. So if you if you don't have any intent or any knowledge that you have something um, that's illegal, then you have no mens rea, which is the legal word for sort of a guilty mind. But with the anti-doping system, it's the opposite of all that. You are, you're not innocent until proven guilty. Effectively, you're guilty unless you can establish yourself through an appeal process 
that you that you can establish your innocence and that's that's very much the opposite of of what we're used to you right. know in the in the criminal justice system you know, the old adage is it's better than it, it's better that a hundred guilty men go free than that one innocent man is convicted right that's right. that's sort of the the way we based our criminal justice system but if you think about it that means that it's better than a hundred murderers a hundred you know rapists robbers you know would go free than that one man be convicted of something that he didn't do yeah we don't have that issue in anti-doping which arguably as bad as as cheating in sports may be I don't think it's on the same level with murder, right? Right, <laughs> so, right, right. But, but we, we're letting the murderers go by a system that really holds the prosecution's feet to the fire by making them prove with a burden of proof beyond a reasonable doubt every element of a criminal offense. Whereas in anti-doping, we've got a system where your A sample is tested, your B sample is tested, you're done unless and until through an appeal call or an appeal process procedure, you can establish yourself in some way to be not accountable for what happened. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting, too. I mean, you know, in the, the, the newly enacted uh, Nevada rules and regulations regarding this, they do allow for mitigating circumstances um, to, to, to let you off. And um, I guess... The, the circumstance that, that, that this case would have brought into, into view would have been um, where, the, where the, uh, the fighter, you know, the supplement, you know, whatever they took, it, you know, it, the, there wasn't any warning or there wasn't any mention of the prohibited substance on the label or if you search the Internet. I think that that's how their, uh, their rules and regs stated. So I guess right. with Canelo, if you search the Internet, yes, there is plenty mention of clenbuterol in, in uh, you know, beef and fowl in, yeah. in Mexico. But what are right. you supposed to do? If you live in Mexico, you're not supposed to eat? I mean, there, there's not <laughs> you like... you got to become a vegan. Right. There's not like, you know, you go to the grocery store and there's like, okay, here's the beef, here's the organic beef, here's the clenbuterol beef. You don't, you don't know, you don't know what, you know, uh, I mean, there's no way for you to, to unless you're vegan. Right. Yeah, exactly. To... to right. To get around that, well, so. you know the the idea of you know what exactly do we mean by strict liability? And strict liability is not in in, in anti doping circles really total strict liability. So in most um, agencies will allow for some wiggle room even though they call it strict liability. So, and the rules change sometimes, but for example, in, in college uh, sports, there's, you know, there is strict liability. You're accountable for whatever's in your body, but they do have different standards that get implemented for if there's no fault, if you can establish that there was no fault uh, on behalf of the student athlete. You know, so for example, he was sleeping and his uh, evil uh, roommate or uh, teammate injects him with some nandrolone while he's uh, drunk and passed out and now he tests positive, that would be no fault. And then there's there's occasionally different types of standards of so-called no significant fault, which is sort of somewhere in between. And that might 
cover a situation where the athlete did everything possible, uh, maybe even showed his um, supplement uh, regimen to his athletic director, and the athletic director approved the supplements, and then, lo and behold, one of the supplements ultimately is found to be contaminated. Maybe the athlete should have looked into it a little bit more. Maybe there was something on the Internet about it, but they can then reduce the penalty Let's say instead of a whole season, it would go half season, so like a 50% reduction. So even though we have strict liability, there's some wiggle room for a case-by-case basis of these sorts of extenuating or mitigating factors. Right, right. Yeah, I think Nevada has really tried to streamline it. I think basically... They, you know, they, they cut the penalty in half if you cooperate and show some evidence that uh, that it wasn't intentional. Um, right. and I think that's that's kind of what happened here. But I don't know. I just think they were a little inconsistent because you have, uh, you know, the UFC fighters uh, who get tested through USADA. And right. and USADA, you know, is they, they basically take the, the WADA directive regarding clenbuterol a lot more seriously because it seems like. Anytime uh, someone tests positive from, you know, Mexico or, or China um, and has those just, just a trace amount, um, they basically uh, label them a no fault. And, and in 2016, you had a, a Chinese fighter who That's right. tested positive. Was that positive. Jing, Jing Lang? Wasn't that yeah, the, it, the Jing Lang case? Right. The, the Jing Lang case, right. In Nevada. In Nevada, basically... Right. Yeah, I mean, in off. the same right, and the, the same athletic uh, commission as Canelo, with the same substance, clenbuterol, the same trace amounts, right? Right. And you know, and he was found to have uh, no fault because of the insignificant amount, or quote, insignificant amount uh, found in his urine, um, which is a you know a very different result than Canelo got. Right, right, right. I mean, yeah, you can't help but think. I mean, the the Golovkin camp, you know, really pushed uh, pushed the commission pretty hard on the, on their strict liability rules. You know, see if they didn't uh, kind of bend on that. But still, you don't want to have inconsistency um, in in your decisions. I mean, that was the whole point of right. Wado was to right. kind of streamline the process and and not have inconsistent results. That's right. And and again, strict liability doesn't mean that there isn't some consideration for the uh, individual facts of a case either. You know, there, there really is no total strict liability because, you know, for example, the, the you know, just the, the reduction to six months for Canelo was, you know, essentially a hedging off of strict liability because it's recognizing the, the extenuating circumstances. It's just not the, the same no fault that uh, the Chinese fighter got. Right, right. Absolutely. 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 Well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit and uh, mm-hmm. talk about um, another case that, that came up in, in recently. Uh, well, not, I guess not so, so recently, but at least it's gotten through the, the court system recently. And that's Deontay Wilder's right. case and Alexander Povetkin, where uh, Povetkin, yep. uh, uh, yeah, I know you've looked into it. So, yeah, well, g- give me your impressions of, uh, of that case. So uh, Pavetkin tested positive for something called meldonium, uh, which was added to the list of banned substances very, very shortly 
before uh, the positive test. So uh, the test, uh, I think, was some five months after the the substance had been banned. It was banned as of January of 2016, and the test was in May of 2016. So it, it was very, very recent um, kind of thing. And um, there was also some kind of, you know, wiggling back and forth about what to do about meldonium, where, you know, there was some indications that, um, you know, um, maybe for a period of time, if you if you tested positive in the early part of 2016, that, you know, wouldn't be held against you. And then ultimately they extended that to a point where if you tested positive and it was below a certain threshold, that even into September, as I recall, of 2016, you would be effectively exonerated from the positive. And, and the amount uh, in, in Povetkin's urine was below, I think it was like 70 uh, you know, nanograms per milliliter or something like that. Right. It was actually below the threshold that that WADA effectively, you know, was was saying was okay until September, months months after his test. Right. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean so, it's it, it it was it was a case where, you know, there there's just a whole bunch of uh sliding uh goalposts <laughs> you know with this yeah, yes, for sure. You know, um, to what extent, you know, judges, you know, look at all of that in, you know, determining what, what to do with somebody, um, you know, um, you know, the fact that it is meldonium, I think, is, is you know, one significant aspect to it, um, for sure. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, with, with that one, it, I mean... The fact that they they had a, a jury trial. I mean, the the, the you know the magistrate judge um, basically limited the trial to one issue, and that was whether he tested positive for meldonium after January of 2016. And the jury found that he did, and right. and then the judge still found that he didn't breach the contract. I thought that was pretty extraordinary. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the judge really looked at the exact terms of the bout agreement. You know, what what exactly does it say in there? And, you know, the, the way the judge read the bout agreement was notwithstanding that the jury found that he, you know, that, that in fact he had uh, tested positive um, for meldonium. Uh, notwithstanding that, that was not, based on the wording of the bout agreement, a, a violation of the bout agreement. Right, 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 right. You know, and that's an interesting point is, is that, the extent to which bout agreements play a role in boxing, unlike in the vast majority of team sports or even other individual sports, where it, it's really the the anti-doping agency has complete control over the terms of what the athlete can and can't do, right? I mean, you, you pee in a cup, and, you know, WADA labs test it, and WADA has a list of substances, and if your urine contains one of those substances in a manner that is deemed to be um, a violation of the anti-doping rules, that's it. 
you know, you, you, there, there's no negotiating what can be tested for, what can't be tested for. But in boxing, the bout agreement can be structured in different ways so that what is a violation of the bout agreement is really uh, what the two parties agree to. So theoretically, if, the, if there's wording in the bout agreement that says that it, you know the, the taking of you know meldonium uh, is not in and of itself a violation of the bout agreement under certain terms. Then you know, notwithstanding that you test positive, you can be you know you can be held that that wasn't a violation of it, and that's exactly what the judge did when you know um, Judge Gorenstein ultimately in a in a very you know well thought out and extended decision wasn't uh, a, a you know fly by night type decision at all really thought it through and said look notwithstanding the verdict it's not a violation of the bout agreement the way you guys wrote up this bout agreement right i think that's a really really excellent point that in other sports it is the 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 doping agency that makes the calls right. on these things Whereas right. in, in boxing, you have, you know, not only um, the parties, but you have, you know, the sanctioning bodies have their own rules. State commissions have their own rules. And uh, it's just really fractured and, and, and harem scarum. Um, That's right. You know, I, I guess the, the UFC kind of saw how that was and, and, and basically allowed USADA to, to run their drug testing program as well. Um, That's right. Yep. And that, uh, you know, years ago, I represented the chemist in the Balco case. If you remember oh, yeah. the uh, the case that uh, ultimately led to the prosecutions of, of, of Barry Bonds and the discrediting of Marion Jones and other athletes. And uh, my client was the creator of the substance that came to be known as the clear, which was a liquid steroid that was created through a hybridization process by combining two other steroids to create an, a new compound. Well, that was, because, was Victor was Victor Conti your client or No, what? no, my client was Patrick Arnold who okay. was the chemist in okay. that case. <laughs> and uh you know so uh, Victor Conti um actually Victor Conti called me after I was already representing Patrick Arnold but um but uh so you know, you had a situation there where um, you know this this steroid was was created and um, probably not not even for the purposes of, of of doping. This was back at the time the pro hormones were on the market a lot, but um, but uh, but yeah. So we you know we we saw a situation where uh, in that case ultimately you know Barry Bonds was saying that it was fla it was flaxseed oil if you remember right, he was uh, right, he right. was claiming that um that that's what he was taking but that led to the the downfall of a number of athletes right 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 so i guess with uh with boxing yeah with with kind of the harem scarum nature of 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 what it is i mean what would you suggest uh that boxing try and do um to to get a hold of this this problem. I mean, you know, the UFC has a, a 365, uh, you know, 24-7 testing. Right. That's right. <laughs> uh, well, and, and so, you know, to just sort of finish up, so the Balco case, if you remember, was, uh, was cracked, so to speak, by a, an agent who was at the time working for the IRS named Jeff Nowitzki. And ultimately, Jeff Nowitzki, you know, 
dug through the dumpsters uh, outside the, the Bay Area Laboratory Cooperative, which was Balco, and ultimately found the dirt on mm. Barry Bonds, etc. And Jeff Nowitzki then transferred over to the FDA, where he worked on a lot of steroid cases, and he and I had a lot of cases um, uh, on, on opposite sides of, of the courtroom. But, um, but ultimately, he was recruited by Dana White. Ah. And so it was Jeff Nowitzki who really... Um, re, you know, really instituted the current system by which UFC athletes are educated and tested um, and brought, uh, you know, USADA in. And so that was all, all Jeff Nowitzki's doings. So, um, so that, you know, that's one way of approaching the, you know, the anti-doping system, educating athletes certainly um, is an important thing. Um, you know, whether 365 day a year testing is possible in most sports where you have, especially in international sports where you've got folks all over the world, um, you know, the the logistics of making somebody available for testing on a 365-day-a-year uh, system is, is probably, you know, not feasible. And is that really what we want to subject athletes to? Do, do we want, uh, you know, a drug tester in everybody's backpack 24 hours a day? Right. Well, you know, there there are some, uh, you know, who who are calling for that in boxing, you know, just because of the yep. vi the violent nature of the sport and their their perception that, you know, I mean, it's not someone hitting a baseball or or kicking a football, it's someone hitting someone else in the head, you know. It's Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and and the same is true in UFC. Yeah, no, uh, you know, certainly added muscle, added uh, power can have uh, an impact, but uh, on the other hand, some of these positives are for things that really don't necessarily do that. You know, these are a lot of diuretics or, or you know, cutting drugs, so um, not necessarily power drugs. So, for example, you know, there was the case in, involving a few, a few years ago, um, you know, which was somewhat similar, was the Don King case, in some ways similar to the you know the case involving Pavetkin. Um, it was also a Southern District case. It was also a you know a question of whether the the boxer violated the the bout agreement um, or not. It was Guillermo Jones, if, right. if you remember, right. yeah. who you know, and that was for a diuretic. Mm. You know, I mean, we tend to think, well, you know, all when we think of drug testing in in combat sports, we think of steroids, we think of people who are now going to be bigger and stronger and more powerful and can do more damage. But, you know, a lot of this is, is for people to cut weight. Right, right. You know, people, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's an issue to look at too is, you know, is, is that, is that good for people's health? Is that good for an athlete's health to, to have rules that effectively force people to dramatically change their body weight and composition in fairly short periods of time and to resort to diuretics, which, you know, have their own dangers, you know, in some ways, you know, different than steroids, but significant as well. 
um, you know, the argument of hitting harder maybe maybe is one reason why we want to be um, tougher on steroids in a combat sport than in another sport. But diuretics really don't fit that bill, do they? Yeah, I mean, I'm, oh, I mean, I guess you know, some would argue. Well, if you've got a naturally bigger guy, you know, chopping down and and filing down just to make that weight, and then rehydrating in a day and and being you know a weight class or two bigger than the other guy, mm-hmm. maybe. But I mean, you know, yeah, you tell it's more me, of a can, stretch. yeah, I was it, gonna it's say a bit more of a stretch, like, not as certainly not as direct, right? And, and one day's recovery, I mean, you know, do you really regain strength? Do you, you know for for all the you know? Are you just cutting water weight? I mean, these are questions I don't know the answer to, but maybe uh, right. <laughs> you right, know, right, right, yeah. But but that's yep. interesting too. I mean, I guess you know a lot of these drug policies um, they don't make a differentiation between you know things that add muscle and add strength and maybe endurance and and just straight diuretics where it's just to, to cut weight. Um, I guess ideally, would you have penalties for diuretics be less than um, penalties for for um, the endurance and, and strength drugs? Right. Yeah. I mean, it would get pretty complicated, right? Because right. there are some that are that are hybrid drugs that may, you know, was I mean, there are some steroids that are used for cutting, um, but but also might either assist muscle gain or at least preserve more muscle while cutting, so it can get, you know, it can get pretty into the weeds at some point. Right. 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 So I guess yeah. These. So maybe the the more general, the better. With these, they're just like, all right, we're going to go strict liability. We're going to make it this amount, and it doesn't matter what you tested positive. Right. <laughs> right. Just on right. The yeah. yeah. That's right. You know, and um, you know, it's interesting too when we, we talk about the bout agreements and you know how that differs from the uh, situation where anti-doping controls the entire paradigm. Everything falls within anti-doping. It's the athlete and anti-doping agency that effectively are in a, effectively in a contract as far as what's going to be tested for and what's not. I mean, you and I have seen bout agreements and on some of the things we've worked on together where the bout agreement may have a provision about testing for banned substances that is specific and general at the same time and and thereby limited. So, for example, you can have a, a bout agreement that says between two fighters that the fighters agree that they will be tested for anabolic steroids and growth hormone, for example. Right. And so, and then there might be a separate provision in the bout agreement that says that the athlete, the athletes agree that they will not take any stimulants. Right. Okay. Right. 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 So. So. Okay. So there are two different provisions, one dealing with what athletes will be tested for and the other dealing with something that the athletes can't take. But they're separate provisions. And you couldn't read from that that the athlete would be tested for stimulants. Right. Only the, the testing provision is only to, to steroids and growth hormone. And then you'll have a situation where for convenience – the, sa- the urine samples are sent to a WADA lab, which does its ordinary course of business and tests for everything on the WADA list, and suddenly an athlete tests positive for a stimulant, let's say, you know, methylsinephrine, oxaliprine, something like that. Right. So now the question is, is that a violation of the bout agreement? 
Right. Now, if this was a contract between WADA and a, a gymnast, then it would be pretty clear because right. you've signed on to a very specific list of substances. But in the bout agreement we've described, now you've got a situation where arguably the athlete should not have even been tested for stimulants because the athletes didn't sign on for that testing. And then, you know, the provision about not taking stimulants, well, that's so vague, it's almost unenforceable. You know, what's a stimulant? You know, caffeine obviously is a stimulant. Uh, does that mean they can't drink coffee? You know, the, the mere, you know, the, the lack of specificity in that provision arguably means that there shouldn't be any violation of that bout agreement. Makes ah. no sense to have it. Right, right, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, I think boxing is 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 starting to to catch on that you know the just saying don't take PEDs or you know we're, we're banning steroids and you know uh, stimulants. You know how do you how do you test for that? You know what stimulants do you mean? What is a stimulant? What is a steroid? And you know I right. think you know yeah. the the fact that you know the boxers themselves would not know from looking at that contract, what exactly is, is banned and what isn't, I think, uh, I think is, is, is a huge problem as well. So, uh, sure. And that's, that's why, you know, that, that's, that's the positive, I suppose, out of having WADA or USADA take over the drug testing process, because then everybody's put on notice. There's a list in January. There's a new list look at the list, <laughs> make sure you're not taking anything on this list. You've got people, you've got trainers, you've got nutritionists, you've got your own set of eyes. Uh, go online and look at that list because that's what you're going to be held accountable to. And obviously, you know, we've seen some situations with meldonium where, you know, as an example of something that gets added to the list and, you know, the athlete fails to check it, uh, and winds up testing positive and, you know, well, you know, you should have, you should have looked at that list. Right, 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 right. Absolutely. Well, listen, at least you know what it is. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one last question I have for you. Um, are you familiar with the, the agency called VADA, Margaret Goodman's? Yeah, so, yeah, so that's the voluntary anti-doping agency. Right. Now they do something called CIR testing. It's like some sort of carbon Testing. Yeah, it's a it's a carbon isotope ratio testing, um, and um, that's a, a level, a more sophisticated level of testing. And um, you know, sometimes uh, I've seen that where first, if they'll they'll do the ordinary levels of uh, ordinary testing procedures, and then they'll do the uh, carbon isotope ratio testing after that. Um, the idea is a, a higher level of specificity, um, being able to distinguish between compounds that are natural in the body versus uh, exogenously um, brought into the body. So, um, so yeah, so, so that's a, an agency that's also uh, in the game now. Right, right. Do you, I mean, I, I know at one point in time there was some controversy uh, with USADA did not do the CIR testing, and VADA did. Um, are you aware if, if, if USADA um, with the UFC do they do the CIR testing or or or? I'm not. Less? I'm I'm not sure. Although uh, you know, the sense I get is that everything is still evolving. Right. You know, right. um, and so w today's drug testing may not be tomorrow's drug testing. 
And today's drugs may not be tomorrow's drugs. <laughs> you know, I mean, if you look at it's always going to be a cat and mouse game. You know, um, the clear that we talked about before is just an example of finding new ways of introducing, you know, new compounds into the world. And if they're, um, if the fingerprint of that compound is not something that matches something on file, then it goes as quote unquote undetectable. And now we've got potentially, you know, gene doping. Right. If it's not here already, it's definitely uh, certainly on the very near horizon. And there's always going to be some new way potentially of getting uh, an advantage. You know, that's sort of the history of of sports um, is, is, you know, looking for, you know, the, the slightest advantage uh, to make the difference between otherwise equally uh, talented, equally uh, able athletes. And so um, it's always going to be a, a game of, of trying to to ferret it out and um you know it gets more and more expensive and more and more elaborate and there are some who criticize the the whole idea i mean obviously there are some who just say you know what let them take what they want and and legalize um performance drugs in in everything but like you said particularly in combat sports you know you you then have basically you know uh, jacked up uh, behemoths you know able to inflict much more damage on each other um than would otherwise be naturally allowed and you know and and ultimately you know, does that mean you've essentially created a, an army of of you know um of chemical uh, warriors who are engaged in warfare of chemistry and and that's that's a that's an issue that's, that's a concern um there's also some who say that uh, there are ways of sort of more biological passport and getting baselines within a an athlete's own physiology so that deviations from those markers um, might be the basis for violations. So in other words, you're not looking for the chemicals themselves in somebody's urine. You're looking for physiological marker changes in an athlete, which would indicate that the athlete was either doping or was in some way, you know, changing medically. And that might be a basis for stopping the athlete from competing until his markers or her markers came back into parity with, you know, the, the normal um, parameters of that person's body. Right, right. Yeah, I've, I've definitely heard of that. I mean, it, that seems to have it, it, its own problems, though, too, because there might be some naturally occurring changes. And, you know, how, how do you distinguish the natural ones from the uh, the uh, drug-induced ones? So <laughs> it's always, like you, you know, said, it's no always a game. perfect system, right? <laughs> right you know, right. there really is no perfect system. Um, and so, you know, one way or another, you're, you're going to make some compromises. You know, I've seen it... Uh, uh, basically argued and and estimated that almost or somewhere close to half of all of the you know doping positives that you see can be um argued or or traced to inadvertent ingestion mm. um and if that's true then you know 
is the system working? And there are critics of the current anti-doping system for sure. Um, there's a, a recent book I, I saw recently called the anti-doping, anti-doping crisis in sport. And there's, um, you know, professors, Julian Savoyescu and others who really are, are major critics of the system of anti-doping. Um, but the question becomes, what's the alternative? And, uh, unless the alternative is simply, you know, letting them do what they want to do, you know, any system is going to have flaws, and the best we can do is try to come up with something that, you know, catches the cheaters, um, but but doesn't really um, destroy the careers of people who completely have no fault of their own, the, the Jessica Hardys of the world, whose lives are derailed because of a system of, quote, unquote, strict liability. Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Rick, I really appreciate your time. I know you're a busy man and, and, and you got to run. Uh, I guess uh, the one thing, I'll, the one last thing I'll ask is just let people know where they, where they can get in touch with you and, and what, you're, what, you know, what publications you have out there. Sure. So um, if, you, uh, if you're interested in sort of performance drugs um, and some news in that area, you can go to a website called Steroid Law steroidlaw.com and that's a, a site that I've uh, I put up years ago to kind of bridge the gap between the uh, the steroid world and the the legal world and um my uh, my office here in New York uh, we handle a variety of different matters if you have any legal problems legal questions uh, certainly feel free to call me at 516-294-0300 uh, again, the firm is Collins, Gann, McCloskey, and Barry. Uh, we've been um, in practice. Uh, I've been in practice since 1990 here on Long Island, and um, be more than happy to uh, to help. Awesome, awesome. Really appreciate your time, Rick. Thanks a lot, man. All right, Kurt. Great talking to you. See you soon, man. All right. Take care. And that will do it for another edition of the Boxing Esquire podcast. I'd really like to thank... Rick Collins for taking time out of his very busy schedule to uh, talk about uh, anti-doping with me today. You can find his great work on steroidlaw.com and also uh, look him up at Collins, Gann, McCloskey, and Barry. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you access this uh, Boxing Esquire podcast. And uh, until next time, so long, everybody.